Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 10 of On Liberty. I'm your host, Salvatore Babonis. Matt and I will be discussing lessons for preventing the next pandemic. Matt Trump. So, so I thought what we're going to talk about today is is science. I mean, no, no, no. Is there... Nanotechnology is the easy part. Social science. Yeah. That's tough. Yeah, well, this is the question on everyone's. Let me start by saying uh, thank you and the CIS for having a positive segment on science. What a, what a delicious thing to talk about. I mean, the world, for me and all of us, we're just bombarded with negative news. Every it's not quarter. positive yet. you still got to convince us. Okay, well, I'll do my best. But uh, even to just be able to talk about science rather than hearing negative news is wonderful. So... Look, um, everybody's talking about the vaccine, of course, that, um, you know, once we get that vaccine, if, if we can get a vaccine, and this is there's a big debate on that, uh, if we can manufacture enough of a vaccine, if we can get it to enough people, we're going to need billions of these, um, then, then that could get us out. The trouble is that's a, that's a ways out, and there's a big debate about how far away that is. So then we go to a therapeutic, and... Uh, Okay, we, we haven't been very successful in, th there have been some uh, some minor examples, there's been great success in HIV. We haven't been really, and there's been some success in flu, we haven't been successful in therapeutics and coronavirus. And, I, and I'm watching and reading every day with peak interest what will happen there. I, I really hope we will have something. There's so much effort. It's so interesting, it's so positive, it's so interesting to see the whole world of science galvanized together with many international collaborations looking for these. But there are ways off as well, right? Right. So then we think, well, ha what else can we do? And, and what can we learn from history? And there's a lot we can learn from history. So uh -huh. we've heard the WHO for a long time uh, articulating the following three words, test, test, test. Okay. Diagnostics are uh, an area that I think could have a bit of a king hit here. It's really? Good term, absolutely. Well, how, how do diagnostics solve anything? I mean, that just tells you you're sick, right? I mean, what do diagnostics yeah. do for you? Yeah, yeah. So, well, there's a there's an old adage. It's one that I like. Uh, so, so my lab works in the area of cancer and also uh, in infectious disease. We're, we're interested in diagnostics in both. It's an old adage. Prevention is better than cure. Mm -hmm. You can. I mean, that's effectively what a vaccine does. But uh, you know, if you're chasing therapies, if you can prevent a disease, that's so much better. So in cancer, as an example, why are these diagnostics important? You catch that cancer early, it's a lifesaver. Right. In I think that's as old cases, as Hippocrates, if I... Uh, I'm, I'm sorry. sorry. I, I think, think that's as old as Hippocrates, if I remember right. It could be, but you know, here, <laughs> my history is a little more lacking than yours, Salvatore. I'm just a humble scientist. So, you know, and I think it's pretty well known that in cancer, uh, this is a lifesaver. If you catch cancer and, and bring on the screening programs, etc. Well, the same is true in infectious diseases, and it's especially true in pandemics. Okay. If you catch the pandemic early, you can stop it. Full okay. stop. So let's, you know, at the moment, we're all talking about, uh, you know, the languages is the curve and flattening the curve. We've got to flatten the curve, keep it under control. Well, if 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 we imagine a world where, and let, let's dream for for a moment, Salvatore. Imagine if 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 there were technologies, um, cheap, uh, point of care, automatic uh, technology, sensor dust, if I can call them that, right. that were that were positioned in so many places, or that people could carry out at home or in the doctor's surgery, and we could catch a pandemic early, before it gets hold. 
right? If we did that, we could shut it down. If we could do that, there wouldn't be a curve. Right. And unfortunately, as is the case with these other most advanced diseases, once a pandemic gets loose, once a disease gets gets going in the body, you have all of these calamitous situations. And so, so yeah, I think I think these diagnostics are pivotally important. And, and the the tragedy is that that we've seen this before. It's it's a bit like watching an old record. Um, right. You know, SARS, MERS. We've heard it all before. That well, actually. I, Watched a documentary recently on on 1918 Spanish flu epidemic. Right. It's the same record. Um, 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 it's about catching the disease early, containing it, and petering it out until we find something better. Now I know the U.S. established the Centers for Disease Control for that exactly that kind of monitoring. Australia has its Infectious Diseases Network, and I know that after the 2003-2004 SARS epidemic. One of Taiwan's big reforms was to establish an infectious disease monitoring network. Okay, monitoring is great, but how do they monitor? I mean, what what are they doing other than just getting reports from hospitals that someone has pneumonia? Yeah, that's the problem. I mean, the problem is, and actually, just be, I, I wouldn't mind if, if I want to do something uh, unusual in a, in a media right. format. So, and I want to talk about the details of the technology, if you allow me. But right. before I go there. Um, just the, 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 the concept, let's get this, the concept of, of the pulse stop, pulse stop, ebb and flow of, of research and innovation in these areas. So let's look at the SARS epidemic. The SARS epidemic brought about an enormous influx of radically new technologies in vaccines, therapies, and diagnostics. Okay. And then it was stopped. Are you serious? It didn't go any further. Absolutely. Uh, you know, the, 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 and this is just what happens with these pandemics. They, they, uh, you know, when the pandemic passes, uh, particularly if it isn't one that, that that has been as dangerous and as damaging as this one, um, uh, it, our attention fades. We move on to something else. I think about, well, you know, what are my kids going to have for lunch tomorrow? Um, uh, you know, the the, the people's uh, funding funding from these, and I don't mean to trivialize it, but funding for these areas evaporates, and so they stall. And in fact, one of the benefits that we're seeing right now in terms of the reemergence of the incredible science that's coming here for vaccines, right. therapies, and particularly diagnostics, that, that, that's something we're interested in, it, it's picking up where SARS left off. We're right. able to start the engine again. But the, I guess the lesson is, well, well, why did we turn the engine off? We Wait, knew. You, you told me you were coming to the good news today. So yeah, what's, what's the good news about diagnostics? I mean, what are we doing with diagnostics now that we couldn't do 20 years ago before SARS? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I, I think what we're starting to see now is uh, an incredible emergence of uh, uh, nanotechnology is now blending uh, with new diagnostic devices. The big change is the old system of testing. We're, we're seeing this now. Unfortunately, even though Australia, and I think we should celebrate the fact that Australia has one of the highest testing rates in the world. We're in an incredibly amazing position here in Australia. I'm very grateful for that. My family is, I think everybody is. Right. Uh, a big part of that has been containment and testing, but the testing's expensive. Okay. It's really expensive, and it doesn't go anywhere near far enough. Um, why is that? Well, the old way of doing testing is you take the sample, right? right. And you, you uh, it, it's usually a nasal pharyngeal, a, a swab that goes up the nose or, right. or down the throat. Uh, and then you don't test it on site. You ship it. It's okay. shipped to a centralized facility. 
um, which uh, does the experiment. It takes about a day to turn that around. Um, this, is a this is what's called a PCR test. It's about 30 years old. It's technology that largely hasn't changed for 30 years. And, and uh, the key thing is that, that logistics of that, of take the sample, ship it, centralized facility, then monitored pipe by a pathologist before it goes back to the site with the information is expensive, cumbersome, and slow. So this isn't like when people, you know, I've seen these drive-through testing. I thought it was, it was like, like an alcohol, alcohol test. test. You blow, blow into the, the, you know, the, the monitor and it tells you your blood alcohol level. You're saying it's not like that. When people are going through these drive-through coronavirus tests, tests they're, they're being swabbed and it's being sent off to a lab and they don't find out for a day or two? Yeah, the vast majority, absolutely. There are two tests, and actually, if you allow me, let's talk technology. Let's talk about maybe how it's currently done and what we could do in the future. Because, and I'll just, I'll just before I show the technology, I'll just launch there first. What do we need? To, why is this important? Well, you know, I'll put it to you that we need this sort of screening. We need, we need rapid, accurate screening at all airports, all hospitals, all nursing homes. All schools. When I mean, before 9-11, the world was so different. I could go to an airport, get through without many checks. After 9-11, we now have metal testing, explosive testing. If we have explosive testing at airports, why don't we have pathogen testing on site, instant? If we had that, Salvatore, then I think our you know, confidence would come back into travel. If we had we have Explosive testing now, metal testing at our schools, at places. Now, it's not palatable, but unfortunately, the world has become a little bit more dangerous there. And the way we've dealt with that, to, to we could have just all stayed in our homes, given the threat of terrorism. We didn't. We brought in risk mitigation strategies, screening being those, right? right. Well, imagine if you had the same sort of, you know, that little explosive swab that is done at an airport. Right. Well, with that, what if what if that just took a saliva test, plugged into a machine, and cleared you for all seasonal flu and all pandemic viruses before you went on the plane? Right. Imagine if uh, when you were at home, you took the test before you went to the airport, and that uploaded with your boarding pass. I think it's these sorts of technologies and structures that we're going to start to see post-COVID, in the post-COVID world, in the same way as we saw it with 9-11. Now, how is that different from the kind of temperature screening I see a lot of Asian airports as a routine matter? I mean, aren't we already doing, or isn't it already possible to screen people at airports? The temperature is just too, it's not. The temperature system is just too inaccurate. Um, um, you know, one of the problems with the uh, COVID pandemic that has everyone worried is this so-called silent spreaders, that so many people uh, so many people um, uh, have the disease, are infectious, but they're asymptomatic. They don't right. have a temperature. They don't have symptoms. Uh, they're not aware that they're spreading. We've had examples where people have gone to weddings and, and have infected dozens or 30 people at that site without the knowledge. One of the, it, it, it's suspected to be one of the reasons why this particular pandemic is spreading so quickly. So the temperature is just not going to work. It's going to work for somebody who's already very symptomatic. But then you might pick up another flu or, or a non-COVID disease. So temperature just doesn't cut it, I'm afraid. It's, it's a poor technology. Right. And the ship it out and wait a day is not going to cut it at areas of mass aggregation. And that's what you need to open up. 
in the right. same way as we did it with explosive testing. Um, so uh, there is a another. Actually, can I go to the technology? And well, I'm gonna, I was about to ask you to explain the technology. First, I want to say a quick hello to some of our viewers. That's Anthony and Gay. Thanks for being there. Sai, thanks for watching today. We're going to go to questions in just a moment. So if you have viewer questions, start putting them now in the comment section on the YouTube screen, or if you're watching on uh, Facebook in the Facebook comment section. Best if you can get in that YouTube comments, I can read it right off. Also. Of course, here at CIS, remember that we accept absolutely no government funding of any kind, and that includes JobKeeper, which means now more than ever, quote unquote, the CIS needs contributions. It's the end of financial year. Donations much appreciated. If you're not a member already, it's only $40 to become a member at the basic category, which uh, don't tell the board I said this gets you pretty much everything. So please do become a member, $40 if you're not already. And please do go to the CIS website and, uh, you know, if you, are, if you can afford it, make a donation, keep this program on the air, keep us getting fantastic guests like Matt in uh, to the CIS studios, or at least virtually in. All right, Matt, I've done my pro formas. <laughs> We're waiting for those questions to come in on YouTube. Tell me about nanotechnology. Okay, no problem. So let me, uh, I'll show you, I'll be a bit biased. I'll show you an example of one of the technologies that we're developing in our lab and we're scaling up uh, for this particular epidemic. So let me start by showing you what a, a COVID virus particle, COVID-19 virus particle looks like. So this is a simulation of a COVID <laughs> virus. Uh, 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 so I'm sorry, I don't have a Wait, better model. How much Australian model. taxpayer money went into building that simulation? That's what I want to know. I can answer that. Zero dollars. <laughs> this is a used tennis ball donated by our local tennis club that's shut. Um, so um, now the one you see on television, of course, has these spikes. So so imagine all the spikes on the surface of this uh of this device. And please remember, this is a nano object. This is an object that's one thousandth, one thousandth times the width of a human hair. Okay. That's how big it is. It's tiny. So how do we detect it? So let me just skip to our systems. We've developed a really simple system and there are labs all around the world that are working on this. We've developed a molecule that looks like this. If it okay. looks like a piece of Velcro, that's exactly right. what it is. What it does, you do a nasal swap, the, the juice of the nasal swab goes in the tube. The Velcro then sticks to the molecule, sticks to the virus like this. Uh huh. Okay. And once it's stuck, a light turns on. Whoops, hang on, I gotta get this to work. <laughs> that's it. Uh-huh. And so um, the that's the nanotechnology. This particular molecule, if you like, with the light, is the CPU. Uh, it's like a computer processing chip in a in a computer. Uh, we can make this at vast volumes very, very cheaply. It's actually made by genetically programming yeast. To do that sticking, and it sticks across the virus and then turns a switch. Now, once that light turns on, the sticking's important. Once the light turns on, that's important because I can then detect that with, I've lost my iPhone, so you're just gonna have to imagine, I can then detect that light with the iPhone in a tube, or I can, I can detect that with an electrical device. I can detect that by eye. Uh, it gives me a close to instant point of sight reader. I could put it in a machine at an airport that could right. work just like the swab test. Now, our, our our members and our viewers are a pretty educated bunch. I'm sure you don't actually have a nano flashlight there. Can, can you explain a little to us about, I mean, is this some kind of uh, radiological element? Is this literally oh. emitting light? I mean, what, how does this work? What, what's the... Yeah. 
What's what's going on in the molecule? I'll explain. I'll explain how it works. Then I'll contrast it with the way that we currently do tests. Right. Okay. Uh, and again, I, I, you know, this is one technology. There are many groups around the world doing this and, and pushing it forward. And I think the post-COVID era is one that is going to start utilizing these types of technologies. And and you'll see growth industries that that, that jump into this this. Uh, this area to bring communities back on and 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 to bring in what I call biosafety in the community, right? Um, so because oh, just one last thing. This well, actually, let's describe it. So this sure. this molecule, what it really is, is it's uh, the cell wall fragment of yeast. Yeast is used to uh, bake bread. It's used right. to brew beer. I love beer. Um, so the yeast itself, I'll use the tennis ball again to describe yeast. Forgive me for overusing <laughs> the tennis balls, but uh, budget cuts, right? So, um, um, so imagine this is the yeast. What we do is we program the DNA in the yeast to make a molecule on the surface to print this guy, okay? And then what we do is we uh, lyophilize, we dry the yeast, grind it, filter it, and pull out just this. And it's a, we programmed it to have a biological element which carries the light, and it's a standard light, right? Um, well, this uh, visual, ordinary light, like naked eye could see it. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Um, wow. So and uh, and we put the, the really key part is this molecular velcro. So the 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 virus has spikes. What we do is we program the velcro has lots of hooks that bind to all that binds to all the spikes. Right. It binds at multiple sites, and when it does that, it turns a light on. That's it. It's pretty simple. And it's made by common variety yeast, which can be scaled up in the tons. Wow. Now, now are, if this were being used at an airport, would the would this need special equipment to detect the light? Or are you literally talking that someone would see a glowing swab? Yeah, let me show you what it would use. It would use something like this. Uh, this is a little USB electrode system that plugs right. into a device. So there'd be a swab. You'd put it on the uh, electrode. And we can get, uh, rather than making the light, we can make a, uh, a molecule here that pumps electrons into the USB device, and so it can be detected by that as an electrical signal. Um, okay. Absolutely. So uh, the magic of this is that it, it sticks to the virus. It, it has a transducing element and uh, a microscopic transducing element uh, and uploads information. Okay. That's the magic now, of nanotechnology. Now, are we talking next year or are we talking 2055? Yeah, well, it, it, again, this is a research program. I don't want to give uh, any mis, uh, um, um, you know, uh, understandings here that, we're, that, that this is a product, etc. But we're actually working on this one uh, very closely with the CSIRO, uh, University of Queensland and uh, industrial partners nationally and internationally now to rapidly accelerate this for this COVID epidemic, but also we're, we're looking beyond that to all future pandemics. This isn't going to be an isolated pandemic. We, we've had these in the past with the globe warming. It's predicted that we'll have more and more of these. And we also have the problem of seasonal flu and seasonal um, uh, uh, diseases that come through our community that we need protection from as well. And it's the same issue. So we can program this mo virus molecule to stick to the fingerprints of the spikes. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm sure everybody's seen on television the, sp the spikes on the on the mm -hmm. virus. That, that On the surface, they have fingerprints uh, that, that are unique to that virus. 
we program the molecule to stick to the spikes. Um, and so we can program it for future COVID mutations, future seasonal views, future future pandemics. Uh, we're, you know, we're, we're working as hard as we can. And I think one of the great bits of news about COVID-19, and COVID-19, make no mistake, is an absolute catastrophe. One of the great things is we're seeing new partnerships between universities, national science agencies like CSIRO, and uh, local and global corporations to catapult these technologies. My hope is that unlike SARS, where they got to a certain point and then just stopped, right. they get across the line this time. And I think they will. Uh, timing, I, I think it will take six months uh, or so to get these. I mean, we already have a, a prototype and uh, within and, and, all, and the, the, the consortium is working with uh, regulatory agencies hand to hand to uh, uh, generate the clinical data. One of the issues for us at the moment is that um, uh, uh, it's actually, it's a good thing, but it's a bad thing. The good thing is we have so few cases in Australia. Okay. Uh, I think that's wonderful, that, that's absolutely, but however, it's it, it slowed down our testing system because we have so few cases to test. <laughs> Not enough so, to test. So we've just pivoted to two international sites to grow. And also I don't want to display our technology as the only one. There are groups all around the world developing these sorts of systems. And uh, I think these are so different to what's currently being done. It's so different to the centralized pathology lab model that just won't work in these sorts of pandemics for, uh, for stopping pandemics. Does that make sense? It makes a lot of sense. Now, we're going to go to viewer questions. Uh, everyone, if you like Matt, please like the video with Matt in it, <laughs> because the more people who like it, the more likely YouTube is to show it to other people. So press the like button, press the subscribe button, and <laughs> forgive me, most importantly, click that support link. Uh, our producer would love to see a few people hitting that link for cis.org.au slash support. Our first question comes from a regular viewer, Gay Redden. Gay says, when are we likely to have an immunity test to ascertain whether a person has had the virus before? And she's particularly interested, can we use these kind of tests to try to discover when the virus first entered Australia? Were the first cases we detected actually the first cases? That's such a great question. Thank you so much for the question. So. Uh, in answering it, can, can I keep using my tennis ball? Is that all right? <laughs> well, what we really want is a tennis racket to get rid of the virus. We don't I, want. I, I don't have. The, I, I don't have the funding in the office. I've got to stop making funding jokes. Um, uh, I'll bring a tennis racket next time. So the first question is, when can we start using these for uh, uh, the immunity passport testing? These are already starting to be used. So I might back up first, if it's all right, and explain. Uh, the two ways that we test, is that all right? And yeah, then I'll, please. please contrast these to what I've just shown you. Uh, and then I'll answer the genotype question. So uh, one way that we test nasal swab, up the nose, drive through or wherever, what, we get the, get the virus, right? And then we ship it, we ship it to a lab. And then what happens is this is a strand of DNA. We, we bust the virus open inside a laboratory, pull out the RNA, that's genetic code inside the virus, and it goes through some complicated steps of amplifying up the DNA and analyzing it to see whether it has the specific sequence for COVID-19, right? That's the most accurate test. Now, while we're doing that, it can also, we can also sequence, look at the exact code and trace to see, is this a new strain 
Is it one that came from China? Did it come from Germany? Did it come from Japan? Because those have also been sequenced. The sequencing isn't a standard pathology test. It's a research tool to try to trace the what's called the epidemiology, to try to trace the the uh, the history of the virus. That's the way it would be done. But again, that's that's that that tracing is is is, is largely laborious. It, it's Take the test, ship it to a lab. There is a blood-based test, and this is the antibody test that can be done on site, right? The way that works is, let's say somebody has the virus. I have the virus. Okay. It's inside my body. What happens is my immune system starts to wake up to the, uh, to the, to the virus, and it starts to produce these little objects. They're, uh, they're called antibodies. And so I then make a, the, what the blood test does is it looks for my immune system's response to the virus. I create another object. Sorry for the props, but I've got one around. <laughs> so I hope it works. I create another object that I take blood, right? This time yeah. not up the nose, I take blood. Uh, I, I, I put the blood on a piece of paper. It's a paper fluidic test. And if, if my little hook catches the antibody, uh, I'll get a red strip, just like on the pre pregnancy test strip. The, the, the antibody carries a gold nanoparticle, by the way. Um, and that tells me that, what it tells me is that, that my body has made, has been responding and fighting this virus. Okay. The problem with that, there's a huge problem with those. Those are point of sight, right? But you would have read all of the material in the press about the inaccuracy of these antibody tests. They are quite inaccurate. Um, now, is, is that just missing false negatives or is that also false positives that they're showing up virus where it doesn't exist? Yeah, it's it's all of those. Okay. And again, some tests uh, are better than others, but the key problem is it starts with this issue that you're not actually testing for the virus. What you're testing for is the body's response to the virus. Right. So there's a step. And the problem is every human responds differently to the virus. Oh, really? Some, yeah, absolutely. This is the area of personalized medicine. Okay. Some people, uh, when exposed to the virus, make a lot of the antibodies immediately. Um, typically, I should say that, that uh, from what we know now, it takes about five to 14 days also okay. to produce any of the antibodies. And so that's right. at least a five-day window of no antibodies where you could miss and you get a complete false negative, Salvatore. So these that's in the area of the silent splitters where this blood test could, and Boris Johnson has got himself into a little bit of trouble there. He uh, uh, put this test out as, as a game changer, um, I think too early without right. looking at the details of how these work. It doesn't catch the virus itself. It catches the right. body's response and the, it doesn't catch the silent spreaders. The next thing is that some people don't produce many of the antibodies. And so you might get them as a false negative, right? Mm -hmm. So uh, you'll test them and we'll say, well, you don't have enough antibodies. But actually, there's another component of the, of the immune system called the, the MHC receptor, which could have wiped out the virus. Not many of these antibodies are produced. The test is flawed. The other place where the test is flawed is that um, many of the current tests that have come, and I won't name the companies, the hook that they use isn't very stable, and it, in the rush to get these tests out quickly, right. using old technologies, this needs cold chain. It needs to be refrigerated. Some of these okay. aren't refrigerated appropriately. In the rush to distribute them, it degrades, and it gives you a false test. So 
That's why we believe the future is to test the virus directly on, okay. on the spot without any processing. Now, I understand all the reasons for these false negatives with uh, antibody tests. All sorts of tests have false negatives. It's difficult to detect things. What concerns me, and, and here maybe I'm too much of a statistician, and, and so it's bothering me, but what, what worries me is false positives. Yeah, absolutely. Is this really something that can happen? Like, how can I have antibodies for the coronavirus if I've never had the coronavirus? Yeah, well, it's it's th this this little issue, this little game is, see, the problem is that with serology, you're not actually testing the virus. You're looking for what, how your body has responded to the virus. Okay. And my view is, well, why don't we just skip that test? I and mean, that's old technology. Right. It's 30, 40 years old. Why don't we skip that technology and go straight for the virus? That's that. That's going to be, I think, more definitive. Next is um, each person produces a different repertoire of these antibodies. It's complicated because our immune system binds to the virus in different ways, and and um, and then you have the problems of the stability of these other systems and how to detect, etc. And then also, um, uh, I, I, I don't want to poo-poo these tests. These tests are actually incredibly powerful, incredibly useful. There's one right. company that I won't mention that is getting amazing accuracy. Um, uh, it's, and, and so we, you know, um, we, we need to utilize the ones that are proven clinically. But, right. but you know what, these are still expensive and cumbersome. We need to take this to the next level to open right. up the society rather than using, eking out the tests only in those few moments. Imagine if we were gonna test for explosives only if there's a criminal record and someone is partially apprehended at, at, at the airport, right? No, we test it randomly for uh, almost everybody. And we do that because the test is so cheap and it's, right. not, it's not invasive. That's where we need to go. Right. Now, Anthony wants to know, do those who recover from the virus really obtain immunity? Uh, and under what conditions do, do people become immune? So I'm not a viro virologist, and if okay. any comments I make, my virology friends who are much more expert at this will <laughs> jump down my throat. But I'll, look, I'll have a crack. I mean, I, from my reading as a chemist, um, the, the short answer is I don't think anybody really knows just yet. You know, the scientific evidence, we're, we're running the experiment right now. Um, you know, the thought pattern, or this from, from my reading, is that what we've seen with other viruses, other coronaviruses, that that um, uh, there is the thinking and the hope and the hypothesis that once exposed, you will develop immunity and it will last a period of time. Will that be six months, two years? We don't know. And again, it'll probably vary in different individuals. Um, um, but the jury's out. This is one to watch. I, I, I'm confident. My personal feeling is that as a chemist, is there will be some immunity and that immunity will get better over time. Okay. I, I wanna go back to the, what's really dear to your heart, obviously, which is this uh, routine detecting issue. I, I'm a big Sherlock Holmes fan. I don't know if you are. And, and the very first Sherlock Holmes novel, he's introduced as having developed an infallible test for the presence of hemoglobin in a stain, which the Sherlock Holmes test, which he says will change crime detection forever if you could routinely tell if a stain was really blood and not some other, not some other liquid. Yeah. Um, it sounds like you're saying that it's making things routine that's yeah. the secret yes. instead of, 
you know, a, a one-off super expensive test. Yeah. Why does why does being routine? Okay, let's say you can do it. I mean, I'm going to give you your your instant screening test for yeah. viruses that's bespoke and can be you know designed for any particular virus of interest. How's that going to change things? I mean, airports fine, but what about the rest of life? How is that going to make anything better for any of us? Well, I think if the the bottom line with pandemics is again catch it early, stop it. Hmm. So how do you stop so, it? I mean, okay. what are so it's an issue of how do you find all of those silent spreaders? If you find the the the, the silent spreaders, if if I am tested and and I'm positive, I'll go home, isolate myself, not infect anybody. Uh, if the what's called the R zero, right, the infection rate goes below one and stays below one for long enough. You, you, the disease dies. The, the pandemic is finished. Right. It's, so we're, it's, it's a non-trivial issue. So we're talking about combining the most advanced <laughs> nanotechnology, the sort of stuff you're doing at University of Queensland, with simply stay home and use good sense. Yeah. So the highest and the lowest technologies. I mean, we've been doing self-quarantine since the Middle Ages, right? So It works. It put works. these two together. Yeah, it, it works. You just have to know who's infected. And does this work beyond? I mean, look, coronavirus. I mean, I I I know it's huge. I know it's affected millions of people. But let's face it: the last time we had a pandemic like this was 1918. It's been a hundred years. Um, so a tool that only helps us with pandemics is probably, let's face it, going to sit in the shelf for a hundred years. Yeah. But, so, so, but that, that's right. Oh, sorry, sorry to cut in. Uh, hey, I'm going to try to cut in. in. So, this can uh, help us in other ways, you seem to be saying. Yeah, it's a platform technology. So, so we developed this for cancer originally. I mean, I mean, you know, last time you and I talked was on early cancer detection. And I think this type of system, it, it's the same story in cancer. Catch it early. Prevention is better than cure. Catch it early. Stop it. Um, the other place where, again, and it can be used uh, see, this is where we started. The, the problem is that if it's just for this pandemic, yeah, it'll sit on the shelf. And that's what happened with SARS. I think we need to start using these technologies now much more broadly in medicine, across all infectious diseases, into, uh, uh, into cancer. Uh, uh, the other place where we're using them, it's not just about stopping it early. So if you then look, let's go to the tail end. And this is the, this topic. I'm, I'm a little bit passionate about this topic of precision medicine. Uh, or personalized medicine, of, of, of individualizing medicine for the individual, get the right treatment for the individual. Right. So let's look at what happens with people once they catch the disease. What kills the small percentage of people uh, that have COVID-19? Well, the data seems to be showing, it's not, again, we're watching this every day, we're learning more about it, but a, a large percentage of the people that die don't die from the virus. Right. They die from their own immune system. What happens is they are the ones, the unlucky ones, it seems, and some people are more predisposed than others, and age predisposes, et cetera, and genetics predispose. Your own immune system may be predisposing you to getting a massive over-response with your antibody, right? These things go crazy, and the immune system kills the individual. It's something called a, it's triggered by something called a cytokine storm. So the other place we can use these technologies are on the other end. So we have another project we're working on where we can detect the cytokine storm early at a single molecule level in the blood. So, and the idea here is that what's clogging up hospitals around the world is 
that we don't know which patients are going to die from this disease and which patients could recover with well, a much lower level of, uh, of monitoring at home. So they're all in the ICUs, right? right? But if we had a way in the same way of monitoring the first stages of the cytokine storm, we could send everybody else home to recover and focus right. all of our resources on the small percentage that are endangered. That itself would turn off the epidemic. Right. Well, forgive me for playing amateur epidemiologist for a minute, but no. it, it sounds like uh, what you're saying, an obvious implication is that instead of doing what we do now with say flu shots, and I encourage everyone to get a flu shot, I got my flu shot this year. Don't forget the flu is still out there. But right now we use flu shots to establish herd immunity. You know, 60, 80 percent of people get flu shots and we break the transmission of the flu. Well, it sounds like instead we could just test people who do get flu and know that they have flu and isolate them. That is, it seems like yeah. we could instead of treating everybody, which is what we do now, yeah. we could treat only people who have an illness. I mean, is that exactly. something? On the that's the magic. That, that's the future of personalized medicine. And also, once we get the genetic code from that, or we see the, the specific immune response of the individual, we treat with the right drug. So one of the problems with the, uh, the patients that are dying with COVID is, is that maybe, and one of the reasons some of the vaccines might be toxic is if you overstimulate the immune system, you could kill the patient. So in those cases, by, by using di precision diagnostics, you might want to tone down the immune system because the immune system is what, we what, what could kill the patient. Right. But, but right now, it's all being done blind. Now, Anthony's asking us, are you talking about different treatment for different races? But it sounds like me, you're talking about different treatments for different people. Every single person, oh. yeah. Different or different classes of people. The okay. racial issue is, is obviously a very topical one, but... Uh, it is a real one, actually. I've seen some data uh, at the last uh, global, uh, the American Society for Cancer Oncology meeting I was at uh, last year. There was some incredible data on the uh, differences, different cancers and different races, prostate cancer in particular. Right. And I think we may need different different treatments uh, for people with different genetics. I mean, that's what we're, that's what the science is telling us. Uh, I, I, I don't see that as a, as a scientist. I don't see that as a thorny problem. I see it as an opportunity to treat people right. better. But we need the intelligence. We need, we, we need the eyes on the disease. That, and, and, and I think to, to answer your question, these are platform technologies that can be used broadly across medicine in all of these applications. Let's use them here. Now, let me see if you have one more prop sitting there on your desk because Wayne, <laughs> Wayne wants to ask you something of a, a, a question that I know is a little out of your field of expertise, but we really respect your opinion. Why isn't Australia promoting wearing face masks when a lot of other countries are moving to face masks to prevent transmission? Do you have a view on face masks or an informed opinion yeah. you can share with us? Yeah, that's a tough one. Um, so, boy, you're going to get me into trouble here. Well, look, I'm just going to give a personal opinion. This is what myself and my family have decided right. to do. I'm no face mask expert, right? But uh, here's a couple of problems I have. So let's go back to the prop, okay? The virus is uh, one thousandth the width of a human hair. It's really small. It's smaller than the mesh on many face masks, right? Uh and so, and, and then the other problem we have, uh, now, of course, it's encapsulated in droplets, and so that makes it a bit more complicated. But the other problem we have, I mean, the way I think about it is I've seen medical evidence 
where face masks can be affected in medical environments. And I've also seen the data where face masks, there's such a shortage of PPE across the planet, uh, Australia's getting better. And you know what, I, I, I so admire and re respect our frontline workers. They're putting their lives on the line. I want them to have that equipment, priority one. Right. And so for me, the data isn't so clear that I can, by wearing a mask in a socially separated environment rather than a highly dangerous environment like a hospital, that I get any benefit. Maybe I might get 0.1% benefit. Okay. Well, I'd rather them have it because they need it. Okay. And so I won't wear it in a social distance environment. I think you can, I mean, there is data to show that you can do so much better by just the old things, washing your hands, maintaining distances. Right. You can do so much better than wearing one of these things and then getting close to people. Um, right. So that's what I do. Uh, I think there is evidence coming out now that, that there's some cheap masks with you know, three layers and whatever. And if you do that and, and you right. are in a, you know, a, a, if you're in environments where you can't avoid being in such close contact with people, can't maintain uh, the standard disease hygiene, it could probably help. Um, right. But th they're the reasons why I, I don't wear it um, uh, in, in my workplace. Right. Now, Max wants to ask us about personal diagnostics. You mentioned earlier pregnancy tests, and it struck me that a pregnancy test is probably the only personal diagnostic that I can go right now into a, well, I can go buy one, I can't use it, but that people can go into a drugstore buy and get a personal diagnostic on the spot. Uh, is this something that people are going to be able to you know, buy in a chemist and take home and diagnose themselves? Or will these kind of diagnostics only be available via a uh, medical office? So, th so this is a great debate, uh, uh, Salvatore. And thank you, Max, for the question. Uh, again, I think this is a lesson we can learn from SARS, right? Um, what's interesting is our current system is so biased, and I would say this because I'm a technologist, right? But I'll okay. say it. It's so, so biased towards the central laboratory testing system. We're just right. welded to that, right? And it's a bit like, could you imagine if we, when computers first came, if we stayed with this model that, well, the only people that can do computing, that can do computing well, are the ones that have a centralized right. computing system. Don't be having those laptops. Don't be having those iPhones because right. they're not reliable and you can't trust it. You need that computer side. I would put it to you that we would never have seen the full advantage of these technologies. And unfortunately, across the world, and in Australia in particular, we have one of the most heavily regulated systems to inhibit the use of these point-of-care devices. There are arguments for that. There's a good argument. Okay. So if you've got a cancer test, should you be at home alone when you find out you've got cancer or should you be with a doctor? I believe you should be with a doctor. But um, for uh, something like COVID, I think we're past that. We right. need, you know, I think, uh, I think it's, it, the centralized system will not work right. effectively. Well, it doesn't serve us well. Even, so, I mean, I'd love to know if I have strep throat and should not go to work. Well, there was a case last year where uh, for flu testing, there was a company in Australia that was having trouble uh, selling these devices at a chemist. I mean, I personally feel they should be able to sell at a chemist. And let's look at what happens in the United States. In the United States, it's fascinating. In the United States, they have a different regulation 
um, where they do the, the, the Food and Drug Administration that regulates all this stuff right. um, has a category called clear waiver, where if you can prove that your device, that your simple device you want to use wherever, at the chemist or at home, operates by, can be operated by an inexperienced person and generate equivalent to or better data than a centralized lab, it's approved. And really? okay. we need more of those sorts of regulation to flow through the global. And, and actually, I think, I don't mean that as a criticism. I mean that from a positive perspective. I right. think that itself, Max, will be a legacy, is a legacy of COVID-19. COVID-19, I think, has smashed the barriers of some of those traditional um, limitations because people are aware of what you just mentioned, Salvatore. And I think with the appropriate guidance, in some cases, it will need to be centralized and controlled. But in a lot of cases, we'll, we need these to be available at the chemist for people at home, uploaded so a doctor could see them. Uh, the other example is diabetes. Um, it's the only, the, uh, look at what point of care testing has done for the management of diabetes. It's saved so, you know, countless millions of lives. We need to open, I think that the, the point of care genie is out of the bottle here, uh, thanks to COVID-19, because the need is so great. Now, we're going to have to start wrapping up now, just give everyone a kind of a, a two minute warning. We're gonna be uh, finishing up this conversation. There's one question I really want to ask you, and that has to do with your move. I understand you know, you've made a move a while back in your career from Princeton to Queensland. And of course, people would be saying, you're crazy. Why would you want to be in Queensland instead of in the in the center of things, Princeton, New Jersey? Uh, for you, what are the advantages of doing the kind of work you do here in Australia instead of being in the US or you know somewhere overseas? Gosh, that's, a, that's an unfair question, so I should, <laughs> I should remind me never to give you any personal information. Um, it was uh, it was one of the most difficult decisions I've ever made in my life. I, I uh, you know, had the opportunity of a faculty position at Princeton. It's not a bad place in the United States. I chose to come back to Australia. I came back for three reasons. One was my family is here. Two is I wanted to raise my family here. I'm really so grateful to have had that opportunity to do that. The environment here, Australia is such an amazing place. I came back, but the other bit was a bit, I'm almost nervous to say it, it, it was naive. I, I wanted to make a difference here. Mm -hmm. I thought I could maybe try. Um, and uh, the advantages are all the lifestyle, the science in Australia, I think really punches above its weight. Really, where I think uh, Australia needs to go, and we talked this, uh, talked about this at CIS on many occasions. It's, it's a hackneyed phrase: is we need to grow our local industries here, our high-tech industries. It's not quite as turned on as it is in the United States. Mm. Um, uh, and again, I hope that some of these areas that are just so rife with opportunity right now in Australia, where Australia has the lead, and it's not just me; it's many labs across the country working with other. It's the opportunity to, to grow another Silicon Valley here. Well, let me ask you, what, what do you need? I, I mean, is it is it venture capital that's the problem, government finance, too much regulation, too small a market? <laughs> I, I, what do you need to make your work grow? So, yeah, it's, a, it's another unfair question, Salvatore. Um, we had a, a, at the I'm giving you your wish list, and you're telling me it's unfair. Uh, yeah, thank you. Um, you know, we had a really great debate. I want to thank Greg Lindsay for this uh, at Concilium last year on exactly this topic. And 
I mean, I gave an opinion then. I, I, look, I, I've lived this journey for a few decades now here, and uh, I think we have everything here in Australia. We're a very rich country. We uh, have all the scientific infrastructure. We can have endless debates about tax, etc. Sorry. <coughs> I think what we miss is, and this is this is where I came to at the consilium debate, was it, it's just this feeling that we can do it. Mm. That's it. I think just deep down, we have a psych, and I know it sounds simple, but I really think that's it. Deep down, we have this psychology that, hey, you know, tourism, we can do that. Mining, yeah, we can do that. Um, uh, agriculture, sure, that stuff, we can do that. High tech, you know, we, you know, we've got, we actually have some brilliant successes in Australia. CSL, Cochlear, ResMed, you can prattle them off, um, but they're, they're sort of not celebrated not known as much so much and so it's funny whenever we talk to uh, american entrepreneurs and investors they'll say my god you know you, you got to move this to silicon valley if we talk here in australia um there's a feeling of oh well you know gee have we really ha have we show me the successful companies that have become billion dollar companies but they're, they're now emerging uh, atlassian is an example we just I think that's the cornerstone. It's a, it's it's psychology. I hate to say right. that. <laughs> well, thank you, Matt, for sharing your message of optimism with us. Much appreciated. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Oh, I'd also like to thank Anthony. I'd like to thank Gay, uh, Emily, Sonia. Thanks for watching. Uh, thanks especially to our producer, Emily Holmes, for making this whole thing work. Our executive producer, Max Hawks, we Hawk Weaver. And thank you, Tom Switzer, director of the CIS, for putting us on the air. We'll see you all again next week.